Today, we talk about one of our favorite subjects, working the marks, fixing the matches, or how we like to call it, Hippodromes. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Money makes the world go round, world go round, world go round. Money makes the, oh my God, we are recording a podcast. Here I am singing a song about money making the world go round. Why would I be doing that? Well, we'll find out shortly in today's episode. Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a professional wrestling promoter. I am a professional wrestling booker, but more important for today, I am a professional wrestling history nerd, and I am here with the Burt Ward to my Adam West. It's Chago Bronson. How the hell are you, man? I'm doing great climbing up this vertical landscape, looking in the windows at our celebrity guest for the day. I'm about to punch a villain and have a pop or a bow come his way. It is capital to be here. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the party. So this is Pro Wrestling History Nerds. And what we do on this show is we get in our pro wrestling time machine and we go back to explore the rich, deep history of professional wrestling before television, before radio. It wasn't really a radio product, but sometimes it happened. We're going back to the carnival days, to the weird stage days, to the vaudeville days. We're exploring the weirdness that you have never heard about, but will change your gosh darn lives forever. Pardon the language. And today is going to be no exception because we are going to be talking about one of our favorite subjects in professional wrestling. What are we talking about? Hippodromes. Yes, a ruse, a scam, a scheme, a sham, a a match where it's not on the level. The fix is in a work, a preposterous prognostication of professional wrestling, or as some would call it, simply an Oka joke, a hippodrome old chap. It has many terms, a work, a fix, um, match fixing. It's all about removing the reality, predetermining the outcome for the sake of financial gain. And how does that work? Sometimes it's a matter of fixing things to sell tickets down the line. We talked about that a lot with Frank Gotch, where he would set up bigger matches down the line by maybe throwing a match here or there against somebody he knows he can beat. So everybody's excited to see the rematch. That's a hippodrome. Sometimes it's a matter of building up a territory with some local goofball who can't really wrestle worth a darn, Wayne Munn, for example, and then hoping that everything turns out in the end according to the storyline that'll sell the most tickets, that's a hippodrome. But also, sometimes, most times, it's about the gambling. This is very much a spiritual sequel to our carnival episode, where the carnival would come to town, the wrestlers would challenge the townsfolk, maybe it was a legitimate, maybe it's a plant out there coming in to put on a match, get people betting, you swindled them for all they're worth, you take their money, go on to the next town. And that has been true in sports for as long as there have been sports. The concept of fixing a boxing match is film noir material 101. It's it's just a, a basic trope of old detective movies. The Black Sox scandal, the you know, the mafia Henry Hill, and this time, not the saloon keeper, the Goodfellas guy, finally gonna mention him, with the basketball point shaving scandal. Organized crime is very good at finding the angles to get people to gamble on things that they control. Why on earth would people then 
continue to gamble on things knowing the risk. There's just something weird in our brains. There's something about the human condition that finds an unbelievable rush in gambling, in risking it all. And that puts the stupidity of humanity at odds with the cunningness of the con artist. Or, as the Daily Morning historian in Oregon in August 12, 1884 put it, the race for being gold. There are few things more discouraging to the friend of humanity and its progress than the apparent fondness of a large section of the human family for being gold. There is hardly anybody with wit enough to go in when it rains, but knows that nothing is gotten in this commercial world without paying for it. Yet the promise to get something for nothing is an irresistible and never failing attraction. No matter in what form the offer is made, thousands come blindly up at the back of the promiser, and even when they have been swindled over and over again, are quite ready to give an allegiance to the last new humbug as they were the first. If the victims came only from among the ignorance where there would be nothing surprising about the matter, but they do not. The wheel of fortune at the agricultural show takes in, perhaps nobody but the weak and simple-minded, but the policy shops, the patent right swindles, and the hippodrome horse races and wrestling matches reach classes that are certainly well-taught and are ordinarily looked upon as sharp and shrewd. With a postscript, and the biggest charlatan of all, the quack, does his most thriving trade with people of intelligence. No matter how smart you are, how dumb you are, many people are just hardwired in the back of their brain for a quick fix, for a quick score, for an easy win, and that's what keeps them gambling on things they can never win. That's what we talked about in the carnival show. It keeps people trying to throw the ring over the bottle that is far too big for them to win, trying to win the Cupid doll for their darling that they will never take home. The, the offer, the opportunity to buck the tiger and, and overcome the odds and, and, and win what can't be won under normal circumstance, to pull the sword out of the stone. I mean, every, every person wants that on some level, and there, that draw is always going to be there. And this game is about emotion, emotional elicitation to extract money. It's about follow the money and all of these hustles, all of these shades of gray of what a hippodrome is, it all comes down to different versions of a competition with the goal of getting as much draw and money as you can out of it, man. And that's why they control the outcomes because then you can control the money. And that is still true to this day, obviously with pro wrestling. Pro wrestling is entertainment, but because you control the storyline, you can manipulate people. You don't have to worry about an accidental win. You don't have to worry about the weird loss. You get to completely control the emotional storyline, and that's what draws people in. It's not the reality of the sport. It's not the reality of the combat. It's the emotional story being told, whether your upper brain or your lizard brain acknowledges it as such, you may know it's fake, but part of your brain knows it's not because it's storytelling, it's emotion. And that's what makes pro wrestling so gosh darn fun. But once upon a time, there was a different goal behind it. It wasn't trying to sell you tickets to the house show. It wasn't trying to sell you pay-per-views because these things did not exist. It was about making as much money in one day as possible with a sport presented as real 
And the best way to do that was to swindle people, to make it a hippodrome, to make it a work. And if you hear us being almost giddy with excitement about that, you may say, guys, this doesn't seem very nice. No, it's not, but it's still pretty fucking cool. And I'm not gonna lie, if this were, you know, 120 years ago, this is most likely what- This I is would what be, we'd be doing for sure. Oh man. yeah, we would definitely be doing this instead of running a podcast about it. Yeah, this is, this is the embodiment of being a worker, of creating something out of nothing. It's, it's, it's almost alchemy in a sense, because what they are doing is creating, like, here's, here's the, the, the way that I compare it for people that don't like combat sports. Think about like a basketball team, uh, a Cinderella team in the NCAA tournament. They go from a low seed and they make it all the way to the finals and then they lose. The emotional investment is not rewarded. And in professional wrestling and where it's evolved, the ability to manipulate the outcome to elicit money and reward or not reward based on the ability to get more money on the return started determining the outcomes and started to really put a premium on, on the Hippodrome. And this was a day when the press was still paying attention to wrestling as a real sport and therefore would do their darndest, their gosh darndest, to warn people about dirty matches, about dirty bookers, just trying to warn people and expose the dirty tricks that the wrestlers and the bookers were putting together, doing their best to protect the people, in a sense, from themselves. We've got some choices. I, I found some really amazing stuff. And before we get into it, um, I just want to take a moment and thank everybody who's been listening, downloading, uh, sending us messages. We love you guys. Like we were worried when we started this, like were people actually going to listen to this thing? And now that we're seeing literally thousands of downloads, people are out there with the same fascination that we have in our hearts. And thank you to everyone who has been a part of this. Like we said in the past, um, you know, the stories we're going to tell today are from a certain point of view. Like all of these stories we're going to tell today are from the media perspective because pro wrestling, no matter how you tell the story, is a subjective story. You could tell the story from the audience. You can tell the story from the performer's point of view. Everybody has their own version of it. It's like Rochamon trying to get an objective truth is impossible. Maybe some of these stories were actual matches that just sucked. Maybe they were even dirtier than they were described. It's impossible to say, but God damn it, it is interesting and I love talking about it. The narration is in the eyes of the beholder and the, the record of what was seen and what, what went down is few and far between. And you do a great archaeological dig through all kinds of nerd material to come up with these things. And I'm so excited for these choice nuggets that you've dug up because, man, nothing is cooler than a Hippodrome. That's, that's the thing I've taken away from this show is Hippodrome is like, we're bringing that back, man. And I'm excited to get some of these choice examples right now. Because sometimes it was just a matter of pointing out that it was a hippodrome, sometimes with a bit of a snide uh, tone to it, like the true northerner in December 3rd, 1885. In the article, it reads, the wrestling hippodrome at Howell was won by McLaughlin. Schellenbarger, his opponent, forgot his cue. 
That is, he did not remember in which bout he was supposed to throw the colonel, so the latter had to do most of the business himself and rolled over on his back himself. Who hasn't seen a shitty indie match where that hasn't happened? Certainly I can't say I'm one. Oh yes, and I've definitely never been a part of anything that atrocious, for sure. Don't Google it. But uh, Chongo digresses. I mean, where does this guy, what is this, uh, proto-Meltzer? I mean, he's, he's awfully picky. How does he know who rolled who? Uh, that's that's a quite a bold statement, because you have to keep in mind, this is during the Muldoon era. This is when it was presented and was considered a, a legitimate sport, basically the other side of the coin to boxing. So to use the word hippodrome is very um, specific and inflammatory, and he's basically calling them out. So he, he seems like he's, he might have gotten a little inside tip to have that much confidence. And two things. One, we've talked about Colonel McLaughlin back in our Theobode Bauer episode, where they had a heated and weird rivalry spilled over into the press. So this was a man who definitely understood the show business side of things. And also, if your match is so bad that a reporter is pointing out that you forgot to, uh, you know, do the do you know, do the finish. Yeah, you missed you, the go home. You missed it big time. If the layman notices it, this match sucked. Because that's another thing we do need to talk about is there's so many people who refer to pro wrestling even as early as the 80s, as the time when people thought it was real. And this is something we talk about a lot because that wasn't the case. Wrestling had been exposed as a business going back to the 1800s. This was the pub days, the carnival days, the vaudeville days. And the press was on these matches like nobody's business to warn people, don't fucking bet on this, you dumb sons of bitches but people still did anyway in droves. Yes, I think I think the 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 missing aspect of it is it that's not when it was discovered to be not on the level, but I think that's when it stopped being presented across the board as on the level. And I think that's where people kind of miss the differentiation there because it was the business was exposed long before that, 100 years before that. And not everybody would see that in the media because keep in mind this is clearly well before Twitter. This is before um, you could go to a website and see the results. You had to find a newspaper. You had to know how to read. You had to, somewhere on, a, on the Western frontier, find a warning that these fuckers are putting together a show, not an actual contest, and not put down your hard-won nickel or your hard-earned nugget of gold out of the ground. If you haven't heard our uh, Carnival or Frank Gotch episodes, those have some gold rush stories that'll curl your goddamn toes. And that's why many times, whether they were shoots or if they were still hippodromes, promoters had to announce them as not hippodromes. They had to put that in the advertising itself, like in the Devil's Lake Weekly World, December 19th, 1913, the boards are cleared for a real wrestling match, not a hippodrome, not an exhibition just to get the money, but a go for blood and determine the light heavyweight championship of North Dakota. Ed Doran of Crystal versus P.H. McGurran of Crary. They, in the fucking advertisement, say, no, 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 it's not a scam. It's not a fake fight. It's not a way for us to like get your dollars on some bullshit. 
they specifically upfront say, no, 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 this is a real match. And that was a tactic that we would see a lot in these days to make the rest of the wrestlers look bad. It was advertising. You know, we are real wrestlers. What they do is fake. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, that's, that's the exact impression I got hearing you give that rundown. It sounds like any other shindy that, that runs a small town with a rival that's coming up at them. We're the real guys. We're legitimate. Those guys can't hang. Those guys are the hacks. And, you know, that could just as easily be a, a post on Facebook today by, <laughs> by, a, by a, you know, a bitter ex-promoter. Yeah, it's something that Jack Hurley would do a lot. Uh, when he got pushed out of the Goldust Trio, he would say, oh, you know, it's those guys are the fakes. Uh, they should be investigated. They should be jailed. And that was all because they were cutting into his pocketbook, into his earnings. It always makes me think of an episode of Mad Men when they're talking about cigarette ads. And he goes, no, no, no. Their cigarettes give you cancer. Our cigarettes are toasted and delicious. You juxtapose your product as good and winning and all good things, and they, them, those, they're the fakers, they're the, the bullshit artists. We are a legitimate competition. Swear to God, fingers crossed, so on, so forth. Yes, we are the proprietors of legitimate competition, and those Mud show shindy nerds down, down south are the proprietors of the Hippodrome. That should be a drinking game on this. A little late, but we'll get there. Well, we have been drinking, so I guess it all works out. Yes, hopefully you've caught up if you've taken a shot every time we've said Hippodrome. And if you're doing a marathon, you may be dead by now. And you would have comparisons, uh, like in the Washington Herald, November 23rd, 1914, if Jack Johnson meets Jess Willard in Mexico next March, describing a potential boxing match promoted by Jack Hurley, the man who put together the infamous sport-ruining Gotch versus Hackett-Schmidt rematch, it may well be to bear in mind that one of the promoters had care of the Hackett-Schmidt-Gotch wrestling hippodrome a number of years ago, because that match was so bad, that people legitimately started thinking it was a fake match. But here's something that I always like to point out in that discussion. A hippodrome will usually be entertaining. That was just a really bad match that everybody was disappointed by. Like if you're you know, an older MMA fan and you, you remember watching uh, Anderson Silva getting bored putting on five round snooze fests that made you so angry that you spent money on the pay-per-view, that's what Gotch Hackett-Schmidt was times 50. So people complained that, oh, it was obviously a work. Hackenschmidt didn't even fight back. It was closer to, you know, Mike Tyson knocking out a part-time refrigerator repairman in the first round than a work because a work needs drama. A work needs flair. A work needs to make people feel like they got their money's worth, even though they got ripped off. Yeah. And a work needs two willing participants to engage in that work with one another willingly. And it was almost the opposite of that because it was almost a byproduct of two guys not willing to give the other guy the opportunity to get the upper hand. So it was a very, you know, conservative and sort of stale kind of matchup. And so it was perceived as though they were not going hard with each other. And it's kind of funny how one can be taken as the other. 
And it's you know maybe understandable for the day because people were just disappointed. There'd been a long history of bullshit matches that were works that ripped people off, that stole their money. So I guess it is natural to just assume this was another ripoff in a long history of ripoffs, as opposed to just a bad match that ruined many careers, including Jack Hurley, who even though he did have a very long, prosperous career promoting boxing and wrestling, it even put the stink on him. I have no idea how that guy managed to keep going because he ripped off everyone, including Hackenschmidt. He made a fortune and just continued burning bridges, making enemies, but still making money. Ah, uh, show business, am I right? And and fight promoters, am I right? And and wrestling promoters, those guys are scum. Don't hang out with them and definitely don't do a podcast with them. And another case where a simple bad match sometimes gets labeled as a hippodrome. Uh, the Indianapolis Journal, May 13th, 1884. The title of the article simply, Wrestling Hippodrome. And it was covering a three of five falls match between Duncan C. Ross and G.W. Flagg, describing it as dispassionate, as though it was simply to be expected. They just simply were like, yes, this match was a hippodrome. What were you expecting, you dumb sons of bitches? A lot of times that was the case. They're just like, these guys are con artists. I'm not even mad at them because that's what they do. And I'm not even disappointed in you because you'll put $5 on anything, you doofus. Yeah, and, and I wonder what level of understanding of, like, if you watch someone have a three out of five falls grappling match, the, the, the process of conserving energy and those aspects that you wouldn't normally think about with just a wrestling match, to a layman to see that, I could see how it would look like they're not giving it their all. But I mean, we have no way to really understand if these were actual hippodromes or not. So I'm trying to sort of piece together the the spirit of what the guy was seeing. And, and sometimes like that's weird because how does this guy know if these guys are going for it or not? Unless this guy has a background. I don't know if these were these writers specialized in sports or anything at this time. I honestly don't know how inside baseball they were yeah. or inside wrestling in this case, because a lot of times I have read these old articles where the writer clearly doesn't understand what the hell they're yeah. watching in a match. And I've tried to decipher their description. And it's kind of like, imagine if you have never seen an elephant and one guy saw an elephant once and tries to describe an elephant to you. Sometimes that's what these old sports papers yeah, have totally, felt like. Yeah, totally, totally. And sometimes people were just simply so jaded and cynical, and maybe rightfully so, they just assume everything is a screw job. And this might have been because Duncan Ross and GW Flagg were carnival wrestlers, were county fair or town fair wrestlers. Flag, um, there's an episode on our YouTube channel about him. The guy was fascinating. He was, uh, you know, a, a, a soldier in the in the Civil War. He got shot through the hand. Think about like what a shot through the hand in Civil War technology and medical technology does to you. And he went on to be a championship level wrestler for many, many years. A bananas thing to do as an athlete, whether it's a work or a shoot. I still commend the guy. Hopefully he made some good money that day. And sometimes they're not just exhausted when trying to explain what they're looking at. In the St. Paul Daily Globe, January 25th, 1896, title, Fake Wrestling Match. Of all the gauzy hippodromes ever pulled off under a supposition that they were wrestling matches, that at the... <laughs> 
That at the Olympic Theater last night was between Thomas Carroll, the champion of the Northwest, and George Greenville, the champion of Iowa, was about the coarsest. It began at 11 o'clock with two evident objects, to get through by midnight when the police have determined that such shows should close, and second, to get as much loafing out of that time as possible so that the quivering audience might down its thrills with drops of beer. The first object was attained with just three minutes to spare. They might have been wrestling by time card. And if that's not show business, I don't know what is, because what is show business but selling beer with extra steps? Yeah, exactly. It's 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 getting the people in the house to spend the money, baby. And it, it sounds like he spent the money on the wrong end of, of whoever he bet. And so he was just salty and accused the Hippodrome just because the show was run in a timely manner. And you know what? You got to uh, you got you to commend them. They didn't have the earpieces to the ref. They didn't have, you know, somebody to, uh, to to maybe pass a message. These are guys hitting their time cues on natural. And that's a skill unto itself. Back when they were workers, man. And quite often, um, you know, journalists, sports journalists would want a return to this imaginary golden age of real wrestling, which we see in all sports where they want a sort of purity reinstated going back to the olden days that probably didn't exist. Like in the Minneapolis Journal, May 14th, 1904. It would appear that the time is right for a revival of wrestling, not the hippodrome performances of the double-cross artists, but clean-cut, properly regulated amateur wrestling. True, it is classed among the rough sports, but few men, if any, were ever killed or seriously injured in working the mat, especially if a stranglehold is barred. There is just enough latent savagery in mankind to delight in seeing two men go after each other. Boxing is barred and wrestling is the next best substitute. Because boxing was illegal in most states and people enjoy watching a fight no matter what. And this was also in the early days of the revival of the modern Olympics. So there really was this concept of the gentlemanly amateur athlete that never really existed. But they're really pushing that concept to try to revolve, trying to revive, quote unquote, real competitive wrestling. So long as they ban that darn stranglehold. Am I right, uh, you know, Evan Lewis? Yes, these high spots today that these kids are getting into in 1905. We need to keep it, keep it down and call it on the ground, as they say. These strangleholds and flippy-doos and whatnot that these, that these newfangled hippodromers are bringing into the game, exposing the business. This is a, a real, this is the most traditionalist perspective we've gotten so far from any of these reports. So that guy, that guy is definitely old school. He's old school in the old school. Yeah, people got very nostalgic about wrestling as they remembered it when they were kids. And we all do that. We always remember the yeah. wrestling we saw as kids as the standard. One thing we can do in the internet era is go back and see it and go, oh, this was fucking terrible. Turns out children are idiots and you shouldn't really judge their, uh, their opinions too hard. But in these days, you had nothing but an oral tradition. So we see things like in the Indianapolis Times, February 23rd, 1928, there is a legend in boxing that only the Hippodrome matches are worth looking at because the nature of the sport and the compactness of the action constituting, as it does, tugging and pulling, a sincere and honest application of which is seldom productive of any high dramatic moments. For this reason, I am not overly enthusiastic about the claims of legitimacy that may have been made in the Lewis-Stetcher match, Ed Lewis and Joe Stetcher, 
when they were reuniting the title. If you haven't listened to our Wayne Munn episode, go back, listen to it. It is a hoot. Back to the article. It may be that it is possible to wrestle on the square and make it look good. This is a strange age. Those who follow the fortunes and misfortunes of the wrestlers tell you the game has not had a first-class heavyweight since the days of Frank Gotch. Again, it's just people looking back on the days of their childhood, assuming it was a real sport top to bottom. And back in the Gotch days, it mostly was, but it was that kind of high pace catch style, which still did match a real wrestling match. It was real techniques, it was real strategy. It was just sped up for the sake of entertainment, but they're still remembering these days that didn't exactly happen the way they remember it and putting it in print as an ideal. Yeah, and and I think that's a natural thing for any sports fan, you know, whether you talk about basketball, you, you kind of remember everything with this additional fondness, you know, whether it's Jordan or Gretzky or Tyson or anyone that's looked back on now is going to be more revered than the current current level. And I think that's just human nature. Um, but there's also something to be said for the fact that at that time, it was still kind of presented more across the board as a shoot, not a hippodrome. So that makes sense why he would be calling back to the time from before the business had become completely phony in his eyes. And that wasn't something that was exclusive to the fans and the reporters. It also affected the wrestlers themselves, who always looked backwards with nostalgia, much like as we saw in the February 24th, 1922 edition of the New York Evening Star, where an old timer in the wrestling world explains that New York City Athletic Commissioner William Muldoon's new wrestling rules were necessary to weed out the hippodrome holds like Ed Lewis's scarf hold choke or Joe Stetcher's leg scissors. And that's showing just how a sport can evolve because I would like to see whoever was talking about this in their prime try to get out of Ed Lewis's fucking scarf hold, strangle hold, uh, neck crank, or Joe Stetcher's leg scissors. They would see these fast-paced catch matches. And once again, yes, they were hippodromes. They were works, but the techniques were catch wrestling 101. And they would look at that and go, oh, well, that would never fly back in my day. It's like, yeah, because you were a you know, a fucking headlock for an hour of Greco-Roman guy, and nobody today would pay a dollar to watch you work. Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean people don't think it's real or acknowledge its power. Yeah, and that's what I find very interesting about it. Because on the one hand, by having William Muldoon as the the, the commissioner, as the face of, of enforcing the rules, this traditionalist, this Greco champion who should know what's legitimate. He knows a, a chokehold's legitimate. He knows a, a body scissors is legitimate. So the fact that he is then banning those moves, my like worker spider sense tells me that it's a work the whole time. He's in that spot to, to give the perception of legitimacy, but then he's banning legitimate moves. And I also feel like he didn't understand submission wrestling whatsoever because, as I know, definitely as you know, as anybody who watches MMA, competes in MMA, studies Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or submission wrestling, 
you'll always have those couple of moves that you can catch damn near anyone with. And it almost becomes a pro wrestling finisher, but in reality, some people, they'll always be able to get you with a triangle. Some people are always gonna get you with an arm bar from guard. Everybody has that strong hold. And because you cross it over with that fiction where you have your Mortal Kombat fatalities, your pro wrestling finishes, just because you can pull it off most nights in a worked match doesn't mean you can't make it look like a real fight or actually do so in a real fight. Yeah, and there are plenty of examples of professional fighters who the majority, if not all of their victories are by one move. You know, Jiva Santana with the armbar, for example. You know, he I, I think at one point, 17 of his 19 professional victories were by armbar and the stats, but something to that effect, it's like you have, a, you have something that you become very, very expert in and it becomes so dangerous. Yeah, it's like if in boxing, because Mike Tyson kept murdering people with his right hook, if they started saying, oh, this is obviously not real because every yeah. time he knocks him out with that right hook, why can't people avoid that right hook when they know it's coming? Just because you know it's coming doesn't mean you can stop it. And that doesn't mean it's fake, even though in cases like these wrestling matches, they were definitely fake. And quite often the media, once again, they were trying to warn people not just against gambling, sometimes against buying tickets, um, just letting people know what a scuzzy business wrestling is. Thank you. Thankfully, that's not the case anymore. Like in the Washington, D.C. Evening Star, September 12th, 1931, uh, customer antipathy against wrestling seems to have set in at various points along the grappling coast. At Baltimore the other night, the paying patrons arose and bellowed for action or money. The words fraud and fake were freely used. New York and Philadelphia mat crowds are dwindling, which is causing some in the newspaper experts to predict that the sunset of Hippodrome wrestling is about to arrive. That may be true. And on the other hand, the scarcity of fans may be due to the scarcity of money too, but whatever it is, it feels the effect and is looking around for a remedy. The cure, however, will not be in further adding of circus stunts and showmanship to the game. Just a little honest money's worth wrestling and less grunting might be the panacea. As it stands, wrestling is 95% acting and the rest vaudeville. I think this person nailed it. Obviously, the way wrestling became popular was to finally make it real, take away all those silly moves and crazy characters, no more circus goofiness, make it a serious, legitimate sport just like we have today. That was the most on the nose prognostication. No, that's not even a prognostication. That is like fortune telling. He was so exactly right of what the business did and what it needed to do. <laughs> it just shows you, man, no one can predict the evolution of the thing. I'm sure there were very few people that foresaw the evolution being that the hippodrome element would become the signature of the the sport itself to where now pro wrestling is family entertainment on the level of disney or pixar and it's it's become americana and it's become a trope it's it's become its own thing and it's only because basically that guy couldn't have been more wrong of where we have gone absolutely we see those we see this in every generation, even people who acknowledge it as a work. 
People sometimes look backwards, not understanding how the business is changing. You have people who go, oh, well, wrestling was much bigger back in the 60s and 70s, so the type of wrestling they're doing today is the cause, not the rise of television or other live events or the internet or the fact I can take my phone out of my pocket and watch damn near anything I want on that. Entertainment continuously shifts demographics shift. You have to adapt or die. And pro wrestling, as we have seen throughout this podcast, has been a massive success because it adapts at every turn, because nobody was honest. Everybody was looking at the wallets, not at their ideals. God bless us, everyone. And sometimes people would make those accusations because they didn't trust wrestling. Sometimes they knew not to trust wrestling. Sometimes it was a bad match. And unfortunately, sometimes it might be a work. Sometimes it might just be racism or maybe both. I found a uh, issue of the Seattle Star from April 4th, 1904. Wrestling match was a hippodrome affair. Chief Two Feathers, and you might remember Chief Two Feathers from our Frank Gotch episode. Chief Two Feathers, the Indian athlete, won out in his wrestling match with D.A. McMillian last night at the Grand Opera House, but with nine minutes, eight seconds to spare. Two out of the three falls, the Indian landed his opponent with a crotch and half Nelson. The last throw, he started in the same manner, but was forced to let go his half Nelson and land his man with a combination crotch. The lack of science on the part of the Indian combined with his tendency never to let his eye wander from the financial end of the bout, rendered the match from start to finish more or less a hippodrome affair. McMillian's science was so vastly superior to that of the Indian that many of the spectators were of the opinion that the match was fixed for the Indian to win. Remarks to that effect were heard on every side during the struggle between the men on stage. And I'm not going to begin to assume that they were right, they were wrong. But I also wonder, based on this description, was it a work to make the, uh, to, for, for the sake of betting, when everybody bet on the white man who was the superior technical wrestler against the bigger, stronger, less technical Native American wrestler, was it a work or did just a bigger, stronger, less technical man beat a smaller, more technical man? And the fact that there was a racial difference in 1904 just make a lot of white people very angry. Yeah, well, I hope it was just so he, he got over on all those on all those assholes because it, it, it's you know, you're talking about a time when, you know, and when you play cowboys and Indians, the Indians were the heels. You know what I mean? So I'm sure that that crowd, especially the Northwest, as we've talked about in the past, the, the, the move from the West Coast up north for the gold mine rush, right? There were a lot of, you know, cowboys and rough kind of guys up there. And I'm sure the, you know, they're not going to be too happy if the local white guy who especially has a good showing loses to the Native American guy. Uh, it makes sense that they would be pissed if he if he lost either way. So whether he he won it fair square or not, they're going to claim it was a work because they're salty. So fuck them. Exactly, because this is once again a very racist country at an even more racist time than we are in today. So you know what? It was a great swerve. If it was a swerve, it was a great win. If it was a win, either way, anybody who lost money betting that night. 
fuck them, don't care. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and sometimes it wasn't just a match that was theater. It wasn't just the match, what happened in the ring that was the Hippodrome. Sometimes the experience, the Hippodrome was so immersive that it would take over an entire goddamn town. Once again, kind of a callback to the Carl Gotch in the Klondike story. It wasn't necessarily just, hey, the circus pulls to town, we do our little scam, we keep it moving. Sometimes it was much, much bigger. The Morris Tribune, January 8th, 1896 covers one hell of a doozy. Hippodrome, the wrestling match at Graceville, Minnesota, December 27th, 1885. For the benefit of some of our sports and those who witnessed the wrestling matches here a few weeks ago, we clip the following from the St. Paul Globe, taken from the Chicago Interoceaner. Farmer, Martin Burns, champion catches catch can wrestler of the world is touring the Northwest in a series of hippodrome matches, says the Chicago Interoceaner. We'll break away from the story for a second. Martin Burns, the champion wrestler of the time, the man who defeated Strangler Lewis, the man who coached Frank Gotch, the man who would hang himself to impress people with his neck strength, the man who understood the wrestling business like nobody else at the time, a man who could legitimately whoop your ass, but would rather make a dollar off of the deal. The man who was named Farmer Burns because he was the stick. He was the guy dressed as the farmer in the crowd that would be picked out to beat the champion, to set up the work, to set up the rematch, and set up the Hippodrome, man. He's one of the early archetypes of the evolution from competition into sports entertainment because what guys like Farmer Burns could do is they were so good at wrestling that they could basically have a, they could scale down the level they were having to compete with their opponent and control it and get the kind of match they want to out of it without risking losing because they were that good. And he was, you know, the epitome of carny wrestling to me. And he was a magic sort of intellect in the sport because we can see so many people in boxing and MMA in any combat sport who are the top of the world, the champions, the unbeaten ones, the unnaturally gifted ones. But how many people are at that level, but at the same time know that by fixing a fight, by throwing a fight, by doing a little showbiz razzle-dazzle, they can pad their bank account three times more than what they would otherwise. This isn't the days of Twitter where you could just talk a lot of shit and get a bunch of followers. You had to really bend over backwards to the point where it more closely resembles a heist movie than it does a heated wrestling feud. Oh, yeah. Uh, the setup to because, again, it's about the money, darling. The Hippodrome is to elicit the financial response from the people to set up the bet, to set up the ticket for the rematch. That is why the Hippodrome has thrived and existed because it is a entity, a concept based on the sport being dictated by the best financial outcome. Continuing the article. 
His latest successful attempt at confidencing a confiding public is just a week old. It took place at Graceville, Minnesota, December 27th, when he burned up the Minnesota town with Duncan McMillian, we're talking about him again, the Cornishman who traveled under the alias of H.F. Rundle, did much to assist the farmer in encompassing the coup. The dead walls of staid and quiet Graceville for weeks had been plastered over with bills announcing the match. Duncan McMillian got to Graceland two weeks in advance of, in, of Burns. No one knew him. He had some fair clothes and some money. He was a wrestler, and he had heard that Farmer Burns was somewhere around these parts. He soon convinced the sports of Graceville that he knew a whole lot about the game played on the wrestling mat and announced that he would challenge Burns. I love the description of this. Like the guy, he shows up under a fake name saying, I hear there's a tough guy around here and I'm going to flush him out like he's Elmer Fudd hunting Bugs Bunny. It is so perfect. It fits into so many tropes simultaneously. You know, the the gunslinger that's come to town to, to you know, get Texas red. And, and it's just a classic storyline. He's he and this is the level that these guys took it to back then. He, he you know, he moved into town and assumed a false identity to build this thing to set up this angle. It's it's a beautiful piece of work, man. And this ties into almost a. Um, a, 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 you know, Joseph Campbell, a Carl Jung collective unconsciousness where humanity has only a finite level of number of myths that we connect to and the champion coming to town to flush out the, 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 the opponent and the big showdown in the square. It's a tale as old as time. Every culture has that story. So when you find an excuse to play it out as real, People will connect to it, and there is money to be made. As the story uh, continues, as the time approached for hostilities, the excitement of Graceville became of the consuming kind. Burns did his work on one end of town, and Rundell, in quotations, at the other extreme. It was with the greatest difficulty that the rivals were kept apart when they met on Main Street. They snarled at each other, sent emissaries to meet emissaries and wager large wads of money on their chances, and kept the columns of local weekly aflame with the derisive taunts and charges of cowardice. Fighting in the press, fighting in public, Holy shit, like that's things, you, they're taking that to such a different level. They're like they're, they're making everybody in town talk about this without a TV commercial, without a promo video. Everybody in town now wants to see how this fight's gonna go and they're gonna pay fucking money to do so. Oh yeah, this is incredible. I mean, they basically did the entire playbook. They did a press conference. They did a, a like, without the weigh-in, they did the face-off. They got in each other's face. And and as I'm sitting there d dissecting it, the, the build, the creative, they've set it up like an old gunslinger movie. Exactly like you said, it's a classic Western build. The, the, the mysterious hero from out of town has come to slay the wrongdoer. You know, it's, 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 it's good shit, man. Continuing, while the good people of Graceville were figuratively breaking their necks to get at those $1, $2, and $3 seats, Mr. Rundell had placed no money on the result of the match, save into hands which passed right back to him but he did bet that he would gain a fall in less time than the farmer could. He's making a very specific bet. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> call the, call the, um, the, there's a couple, there's a couple different ways you can, you can place specialized bets, but that is a beautiful, beautiful 
uh, tell to what's to come. I love that, that he picked that up too. Well, the night of December 27th, as other nights, if you wait for them, finally came along, and with it such a house as Graceville had never seen before. The village board, the justice of the peace, the road commissioner for the county, the town clerk, the sheriff and marshal, pound keeper, and all the rest of the masculine elite of Graceville came early and stayed late. The first fall, amid the wildest sort of uproar, went to Rundell. A hammerlock and body hole did the work, and coup number one was registered. Mr. Rundell, in winning the first fall, of course, won the money that the dense ones in Graceville had laid to the contrary. So got him. He got him. He put yeah. his money down on one very specific thing, yes. and he fucking nailed it. So now he's already got his first payday, and I love how condescending this writer is up towards the people who put that money down. Then Burns won two falls straight. The last one was won in less than five minutes, and the Graceville sports who had Burns for the quickest fall felt that their money was secure. It was for just 10 minutes. Immediately after the rest which followed the second fall that Burns won, the men went at each other, and in three and one half minutes, Burns found that an impending financial crisis made it imperative for three points of his wrestling anatomy to touch the mattress. That is such an unbelievably fantastic hustle. They schooled these guys on so many levels. Every bet hit. There's so many layers to how they just pull up. This is incredible, man. It really is like a heist movie. And what I find so beautiful is they didn't do it gracelessly. They made an art out of this. They made it high drama where it was still a back and forth. They just didn't go out and burn people immediately. They gave them a show. They gave them drama. They gave them excitement. So even if part of your brain wonders what's real, if this is real, you're too caught up in the emotional moment to maybe think straight or even care if you do. This sounds like the greatest example I have heard in the history of our show of using the art form of professional wrestling to elicit financial response from the audience, of working, of doing a fucking hippodrome. And it is beautiful. And if you're wondering the three points of his wrestling anatomy to touch the mattress means, in traditional catch wrestling, it wasn't necessarily two shoulders. It could be both hips and a shoulder. One hip and, or I'm sorry, one, uh, one hip and two shoulders. There were a lot of nuance of a fair fall versus a foil. We can talk about that at a later point, but there was just a lot of nuance as to what considered a pin or a fall. Moving on. Waiting just long enough to cinch the quick fall money for Rundell, Burns upset McMillan. The farmer was still champion of the world, and Graceville had seen a wrestling match. And that is the most passive-aggressive finish to a sports article I have ever read in my life. This is so beautiful. I, <laughs> I love that he's mad. He definitely, he's so mad when he wrote this. He's mad and he's also so disappointed in the entire town for, it's, it, it, he's just looking at everybody like a bunch of dumb fucking rubes, not believing that they fell for this long con burn that they all stepped into and lost money on. 
So that's one of my favorite Hippodrome stories that I did find kind of floating in the vacuum. And there were, you know, throughout wrestling until the modern era, there were also times when accusation of Hippodromes came about to discredit one's rivals or to punish one's enemies, like what we talked about with Jack Curley accusing many other promoters of booking Hippodromes and demanding they be investigated and possibly jailed until, of course, he got his percentage. Clarence Whistler went to the press and accused William Muldoon of hippodroming their matches because Muldoon didn't pay him for a match. Whether that's true or not, it's still a great way to take a man a few pegs down in the public's eye. This is why athletic commissions came into existence and why they're important, because you have to ask yourself, with all the match fixing across all sports, how did it come to an end? The answer is the state had to step in. Example, January 29th, 1921, the New York Herald, Governor Miller favors putting wrestling under state control. To a representative of the New York Herald, who interviewed him yesterday on the subject, Governor Miller did not see why wrestling should not be placed under the control of the government of the Boxing Commission. This word from the state executive makes it look as if the movement to place wrestling under state control will prove successful. If boxing is in need of such control, wrestling most certainly requires it. And besides, there is no reason why wrestling should not contribute to the state treasury just as boxing does. And that explains why wrestling in many states is still controlled by the athletic commission. Everyone knows it's a work. Everybody knows what it is. But if they can get their fucking percentage, they're going to take it. It's about the money, darling. That's the thing it's been about from day one. And and the athletic commission exists. It, it serves a, a necessary evil because it is the checks and balances system that that ensures that legitimate competition is legitimate competition. So you don't get guys using loaded gloves and doing un, unfair damage and unrealistic damage comparative, you know, whether you're talking about corked bats, just keeping the game on the up and up allows for um, true, you know, you're safeguarding the money, the gambling and all that. And again, it just, it all comes back to the money. And that's why you know, well, you'll, if, you're, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, every time there's a UFC or a boxing match or a big sporting event, you'll always have some goofball saying like, oh, it was obviously fixed, blah, 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 blah. Bad officiating is not fixing a fight or a game. An expectation not being met is not a fixed outcome. And like I said, the reason that is they are now protecting the money, they're protecting the gambling, they're protecting the reputation. And the reason why in the United States, that's why I'm qualifying it as in the United States, you don't see fixed pay-per-view fights anymore because people would go to fucking jail for many, many years. Investors would be wiped out after they you know, dropped a billion dollars into backing a fight promotion. Japan, Russia, other companies. Oh, fuck. Yeah. You still see some fixed fights. Um, anybody who, uh, you know, spent time watching uh, Pride FC fights uh, over in Japan knows you'll see some goddamn fishy things. I actually just watched one the other day. It was um, Valentin Overeem versus uh, Asuaria Silva. And I swear to God, I watched a botched finish where um, Overeem's like on top, kind of, he, he literally stepped over right into heel hook position and then for no reason fell back. And Silva didn't grab the heel hook. Maybe he wasn't in on it. Maybe 
who knows? But then he had to like squirrel his way back up to his feet, keep his foot in the heel hook position, get caught in a heel hook, and then fall back and like dramatically yell in pain and tap out. You don't see that in America because they would still be in prison with their athletic commission licenses pulled forever. But the world is a bigger, crazier place than just America even compared to back in these days we're talking about tonight. <laughs> yeah, for one, I miss pride. For two, America is about the least likely place you're going to get a fixed fight because of the legal ramifications. It's kind of uh, akin legally to like insider trading. And if they throw Martha Stewart in jail, they will definitely throw some scumbag fighters and, and fight promoters and fixers. You know, it's a dirty game. And... The Athletic Commission allows for the perception of a baseline of legitimacy, which actually makes it easier to cheat and hustle and and work things on the side, not in terms of the fight itself being fixed, but in terms of how guys can hustle, like the way they have parlay bets and and specialty side bets. The the thing is so specialized now and and it really comes down to the money. And the money was there, the money was made, whether it was the circus tents of post-Civil War, the saloons of New York City, the theaters coast to coast where wrestlers were doing their darndest to make it look real, but the press and the audience wasn't 100% onto them. Sometimes you left as a champion, sometimes you left as a hero, sometimes you had to sneak out under the cover of night to avoid arrest because you did a bad job. But that's show business, baby. That's show business. And that also applies to us after this show. We never know what's going to happen. It is. This has been one of my favorite episodes we've done, man. And I just I just want to say it one more time for the people. Hippodrome! Hip-a-fucking-drome. So thank you so much for listening to this. I hope you loved these stories as much as we do. We're a couple of carnies at heart, and we just love the crazy adventures of our old-timey uh, you know, predecessors. But it's time to call it a night. We've all heard our crazy stories. We've had our crazy adventures. Um, make sure if you haven't already, you know, subscribe to this uh, podcast on your preferred app. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Same thing with Instagram. I like to find the old timey photos and put them up and sometimes clips from old articles. We love fun. We love learning. And that's what we do around here. We listen, learn and party. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Good night. Cut print martini. <laughs>